if what we're facing today is actually a shift of concepts, which is from the psychology of the person who's going to lead this set of assets, which we call an organization, to the sociology of where do these set of assets fit in society. We now have different concepts, but that is the challenge. The challenge is we're actually facing a shift from that one person. This is The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind leadership intelligence, the five cues for thriving as a leader with Andrew Kakabasi. Professor of Governance and Leadership at Henley Business School in the United Kingdom, Emeritus Professor at Cranfield University, has consulted and lectured all across the globe, published over 30 books, 200 journal articles, sat on numerous boards, and is an authority on all things leadership, Mr. Andrew Kakabasi. Andrew, welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. That's lovely to see you again. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. For full disclosure, many, many moons ago, Andrew was one of my lecturers when I was doing my MBA in the depths of rural England. Really looking forward to this conversation, uh, particularly in relation to the evolution of leadership. But even before we dive into that, a, a very personal question. You have accumulated over your career so far a pretty strong body of work in the topic of leadership. Going back to the early days, what led you to being focused on doing you know, big pieces of research on leadership? What drew you there? Two things. Um, first, just reading. And the reading was a mixture of leadership and strategy. And that basically said, here are the principles. Here's the good principles, a strategy for good leadership. I saw none of those principles in practice. And there was one particular practice that stood out. I was involved with some of the scandals in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. The Blue Arrow affair in the city where shareholding was supposed to have been misdone, mislaid. And what was interesting was long before the Blue Arrow case came to court, the one person that was going to lead the uh, investor team into the Blue Arrow type of circumstance, Blue Arrow wasn't even heard of, Mm -hmm. was pinpointed by me. Oh, really? This is the guy that's going to get into trouble. And that particular individual was one, brilliant, two, entrepreneurial, three, unbelievably mentally quick, mm-hmm. four, unbelievably emotionally adaptable, and five, very resilient. So this individual had all the components for tremendous success or going to prison, one of the two. <laughs> and when I spoke um, to the team about him in front of him, yeah. I gave all that and they all laughed and said, yeah, he's going to prison and probably will take us with him. So there I had a very interesting insight, although it was gaming and fun. And may I say with Blue Arrow, the uh, people that were taken to court in one of the longest ever criminal trials were all found innocent. And they were. Okay. They were innocent. There was a lot of mismanagement, but there was not duplicity. Mm -hmm. They were conscious of their weaknesses. And what was interesting was that they could predict their outcomes if they did nothing. And that fascinated me. 
So if I don't do something and I know what's going to happen to me because of what I am and I understand my circumstances, I can then tell you this is going to happen to me. And for that particular team, one of the options was going to prison. And they still did nothing. And then I got involved with a particular merger and acquisition that went wrong. Exactly the same. The number of people that told me we should never have taken this particular challenge on, we should never have gone down the route of this particular acquisition. Actually, we talked merger. It was us being the dominant partner. This was going to go wrong. was going to go wrong. We knew the culture of the other place. We knew what the people were like. So I asked the question with all that insight, why didn't you do something? And they said, you try speaking to the CEO. So what I noticed was when people are in difficulty, not only are they deeply aware of their circumstances, they're actually quite mentally smart. They can tell you what's going to happen in the future. And I found in many cases, including HBOS, people were able to predict five and a half years into the future to the point of an accuracy to the week. Five and a half years into the future to the week, this is what our company should look like. It's called bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So why didn't you do something in the meantime? So with all that insight, why didn't people do something? And that is what was fascinated me. And the same occurred in Australia, in the US, in Russia, in mm. China, everywhere. So this is a phenomenon, if you like, of executive and leadership life. And that's what led me to an understanding of the dynamics between people, the dynamics in teams, the reality of how strategy is executed and exercised, the reality of how governance and board work is actually exercised and implemented. And that leadership challenge is immense. Mm. Mm. And only one of the elements of leadership is to be mentally smart. There are many more. And that's why I did all this research. Got it, got it. Interesting when you talk about that phenomenon of, of back in the day, you know, or even to today, uh, you know, executives and leaders having that foresight of knowing how this all ends, yet this resistance to action some of the phenomena that exists around that or some of the reasons why there is that mental handbrake, is it driven primarily by how it will be perceived by shareholders and kind of signaling to the street that, oh, you know, things maybe aren't as they seemed and the perception management that goes out the door is very finely crafted and it keeps a lot of the executive conversation, a lot of the boardroom conversation away from that. Is, is, is that perception management one of the main reasons why you think executives weren't able to kind of act on their on their intuition on their understanding on their intelligence it's a very good question and what i found out is perception management is actually one of the tools to deceive and i don't mean deceive in a bad sense i mean actually to give an alternative view which gives confidence to the public to the investors to whoever mm -hmm. but the prime reason is actually meant, uh, emotional strength Resilience. Please do not think that this is a function of leadership because before I entered into the sort of management corporate world, I was in psychiatry. So I was a mental health officer and I found exactly the same phenomenon. So, for example, I remember one very wealthy person, um, unfortunately an alcoholic. He was drugged and dependent on whiskey. Mm -hmm. But the, the mechanisms that individual used... The amazing deceptive approaches this person used to show how 
good they were, how honourable they were, how they were in full charge of their life when they were not. I should also say this person was a magistrate, as Mm -hmm. well as being very rich. So there was a need to actually portray an image for public and personal confidence. But underneath that was a person that was deeply troubled. And the more they were troubled, the more they lost confidence in themselves, the more they were actually, even in a medical sense, their resilience hormone, hydrocortisone, was diminishing. So they could just not face up to one more emotional problem, one more emotional concern. And funnily enough, that's what I found in the boardroom and the top team. Mm. The courage to fundamentally make a comment, challenge current perceptions, has many implications. The worst one being, I can't cope. So I have, mm. I have seen people or heard people tell me um, I could lose my job. As a board director, I may be out of the network. I couldn't be trusted. All that of which is true. But underneath that was the reality that I could not cope in this context, in these circumstances, with the dynamics that were going to um, play out if I spoke up and told the truth. And it's interesting, just the application of resilience, particularly in the last couple of years, Angela Duckworth's work on grit and how these sort of things are starting to make their way into executive uh, training and expectation, the rise of the mindfulness industry and these sort of things and kind of tying their effectiveness, which at least from a lot of the literature that I've been reading, the jury is somewhat still out. How do you actually foster you know, that grit, that determination. Again, like the, 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 the Duckworth terminology runs along, was it practice, purpose, hope, and interest, I think it is. And the resilience you're talking about isn't, isn't that. It, it's something much more personal, much deeper, much it more is. focused to identity. It is. It is focused on identity. It is the sum of the experiences and the stretches that you've gone through. Imagine in, in any CEO's role, You have short-term measures, which are increasing, to fulfill. And then you have all the issues on sustainability, corporate social responsibility, corporate responsibility, perception of a press, perception of a new digital area type of awareness and scrutiny that takes place. So here you are worried about image, you're worried about short-term results, and you're worried about giving a long-term view on confidence. Now, what happens if you're a commodity business? What happens if your business is short-term all the time because your organization is coming to the end of its economic life cycle? Yeah. How do you portray all those wonderful images about long-term sustainable futures when you know they may, may not be true? After a while, it gets at you. Isn't it a circumstance at the moment that not only chief executive tenures but also the life cycle of organisations is now shortening. It's under 20 years or something like that now. It's all that. But you're still the one person accountable. And when that sits on you, things happen. So you'll find the resilience, resistance, grip type of phenomenon. They have taken a sort of sociological, social interpretation. What is your purpose? What is this? What is that? And somehow if we had some alignment between these different experiences we will get someone who's more grit-worthy. There is one thing that many people are uh, unfortunately not looking at, and that is actually there's a medical component to this. Oh, really? Once you've reached about the age of 29, 30 as a male, it happens to females but in a different way, your testosterone level basically reduces 2% a year. 
mm-hmm. by the time you're 60, you're 60% deficient in testosterone. And that is not just, if you like, a sexual capacity. That is just life. Mm. That is well-being. That is good skin. That is nice hair. That is all of the various bits that allow you to cope. With that reduction, there's a reduction in your stress hormone, hydrocortisone. Mm -hmm. So as you get older, you get promoted because of your experience and your good work. As you get older, you get more stretched. And as you get older under those circumstances, your testosterone and hydrocortisone levels diminish even faster. So what do you expect by the time you're 58, 59, 60 plus, Mm -hmm. or even 45? Yeah. So we have a very interesting phenomenon today of what performance means. And most regretfully, what we're doing is we're taking almost a 1960s, 1970s growth market interpretation of performance, that if somehow we do all this, things get out great. Mm -hmm. If there were the five ways of doing X, Y, Z, we will succeed as a company, we will succeed as an individual. But we're not. We're in mature markets. Yeah, it's, it's the ongoing love affair with growth and the expectation that you, we must grow double-digit quarter on quarter Absolutely. or else. Or else what? Like you know, We have to grow. Why? A lot of leaders don't like being confronted with those sort of things because they closely link their identity. And it's interesting, even linking back to your testosterone comment, it's leaders are seen to be you know steadfast ambitious they invest in the gray hairs and you know this is a sensible head at the top of the organization but particularly with you know the evolution of the corporate landscape over the last 15 to 20 years you know particularly the rise of technology organizations and how that's shifted you know there's a lot of expectation on senior leaders of more mature organizations to be as ambitious if not more and this is where it's you know the the change initiative the ongoing change initiatives change saturation and change fatigue within organizations you know there's an expectation to keep up with you know your apples and your googles and your and, and your, your big large tech companies because they're being ran by a different caliber of leader in most circumstances not always but from a trend perspective, how are you seeing the more mature, level-headed leaders actually start to deal with this? Or are you seeing kind of a bit of a head in the sand, like you say, kind of our definition of how leaders lead is going backwards to the 60s. Meanwhile, you have a component of the economy that's going gangbusters forward, forward with a completely different leadership model. And again, if we take that particular comment, how am I seeing leaders? Some are doing very well, some are doing not so well, some are reducing, some are declining all will tell you, do you know how little influence I really have? So one of the interesting comments is, or questions for us all is, under these circumstances of today, where there isn't a growth, there's actually a clever need to reposition a brand, reposition an image, perhaps go for a longer-term point of view, perhaps not go for this crazy bonus, excessive bonus culture, and perhaps go more for... Uh, you know, a steady growth, um, paid so much, paid almost on the John Lewis partnership mm-hmm. type basis, mm-hmm. which actually quite a few American companies are now doing. Mm. And they're not partnerships. And they don't have a legal sort of protection from the market. Yeah, it's this co-op sort of it's model. It's a cooperative to, yeah. model. Yeah. What we're seeing there is one fundamental question, which is, is it leadership that will lead us through? Or is it a new structural design that will lead us through? Because when I talk to many of the leaders, they say to me, well, do you know, I'm going to make the same mistakes as the last guy. Mm -hmm. The guy that follows me is going to make the same mistakes again. What do you expect any leader to do under these circumstances? And they'll 
uh, read out the circumstances to me one by one by one by one. And actually, those are all the circumstances of a mature organization that needs to reinvent itself mm-hmm. and rethink itself with not the same reward schemes of the past. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Even building on that, it's there has been an uptick in business model transformation, or at least the language around business model transformation. You know, it's this idea of uh, changing the wheels on the bus while the bus continues to move, and what does that actually mean? And that puts a lot of strain on the leaders to try to you know sell this internally. You know, you've got business lines who are fighting for resources; they're doing great work, and you're going to go, "Look, team, we're going to do this, and yes, we're going to upset everyone, but it's for the greater good." And trying to get that internal buy-in is is is, is incredibly challenging. And you, you mentioned something else uh, a couple of moments ago that I'm going to link in in relation to um, the identity and the uh, kind of the emotional construct of the leader and that confidence and that resilience. How does that translate in relation to kind of getting stakeholder commitment to actually drive these sort of initiatives forward? Very interesting question. If what we're facing today is actually a shift of concepts, which is from the psychology of the person who's going to lead this set of assets, which we call an organization, to the sociology of where do these set of assets fit in society. We now have different concepts. Now, imagine talking like this to a group of executives or investors. And imagine you're going to take them back to the 1960s, you're going to talk about a sociologist known as Talcott Parsons and functional theory. Well, believe you me, they're asleep in two seconds. (laughs) Yeah. But that is the challenge. The challenge is we're actually facing a shift from that one person, that one individual that's going to drive us through, to now an understanding of our context. And it may not be that one person, it may be a team. Mm -hmm. It may actually be a series of partnership-type arrangements across organizations, horizontally, that's going to make the value-adding difference. Now, once you start thinking like this, you've actually shifted your fundamental conceptual base. Mm -hmm. And we haven't in our teaching, but we have in our practice. And if you go to the terms of sociology and that famous sociologist Talcott Parsons, people Mm -hmm. get switched off. So what is that common, acceptable language today that helps people say, yes, you're right, it's not just that one person anymore, it's just not that leader, it's a number of us getting together and looking how we're forming value along a value chain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is now beginning to make sense. Now that means I can't be rewarded for short-term gains. I've got to be part of a much broader network, which is not called a team. It's a network because members of that network will compete with each other as well as cooperate with each other. And that's going to be, and this is largely because of uh, digitalization and technology, Mm -hmm. this is going to be the way of the future. So we're just at that transition point. And that's the interesting challenge we all face. In relation to the digital drivers of this transformation, there's been a lot of people, senior leaders, responding to it, like talking a, a good game, but none of it really kind of leading to actual action because there is this perception that if we do anything too you know, jolty, you know, it'll spook the market and everyone will go, okay, you know, we thought that company X was you know, dependable, boring stuff, consistent returns, you know, steady ship, you know, you know, strong head, strong leader. Um, but it's almost this kind of status quo sort of a thing. It's like, well, you know, we need to change because the world is changing, but how do we get our leaders to 
get that buy-in for change, you know, everyone is looking at the leaders to go, okay, well, you, sir or ma'am, are on the hook for this. You need to do something. But driving that action internally, this is kind of changing here. This is the competitive dynamic, and it needs to happen to, to, to move, it, move change forward. Absolutely true. Uh, not only do boardrooms have uh, a limited language to express the new technologies and what's relevant mm-hmm. for them, and people think that if you provided that language and that insight, perhaps a seminar, things will help. What I found is it does not. And the reason is it's not technology. The worrying reason is that the board still has not understood what is the competitive advantage of the firm on whose board they sit. So if you look at a board, it is one step removed from the management team. Mm-hmm. It's there to provide oversight. It's there to provide governance. How can you provide governance if you do not understand what is the competitive advantage of this firm. So that raises a question now, how close is your link with the management? Mm. How close is your link, even worse, with the general management below the top team, where the real action is taking place, so that you can see competitive advantage and value delivery in action? And the answer is, not very close. Yeah. Add to that technology, we have a problem. And even when you invert that, there's also a challenge going the other way. Um, some boards are tokenistic, like particularly within the non-executive directorship. You know, it's you know the chair's brother-in-law who sits there, and you get this group think herd mentality, rubber stamping thing, where they are not closely aligned or understand what's actually happening in the business. But there is this comfort level and expectation for them just to punch it through and. You know, not really do the work of a good board and not provide that governance. They're just, you know, kind of they're there because they need to be there, courtesy of law. And, you know, they let the executive leadership team do what needs to be done and it's kind of hands off. Uh, I've seen this trend around, you know, more fiercely independent non-executive directors starting to come back in starting to be surfaced and encouraged you know, and, and, and recruited into organizations that need that shakeup because you have that legacy, that group think within senior leadership and it just becomes complacent. So to your point, it's, you know, you have these drivers for change. You can have complacency in the board. The, you know, the executive leadership team are doing what they're doing, usually for short-term financial benefits. And as the world changes, and particularly as longer-term strategies, you know, there, there is a need for longer-term strategies to come on board. People are looking at the quarter close and AGM to AGM, and they're not really looking over the current business cycle to actually start thinking strategically and make those change decisions. You know, in, in your opinion, is this sort of a bit of a death knell for some of these leaders? Because it, it surely can't end up that way. It's a tension. Thankfully, we are getting more of the independent, smarter, brighter NED coming through. Thankfully, also, we're seeing far less of the brother-in-law, my friend, sitting on the board. But we are seeing the network sitting on the board. So, oh, okay. so one of the interesting things about getting onto a boardroom is how do you actually do it? And it's still a mystery in many ways. But largely, you need to penetrate a network mm-hmm. where from which you will be selected. Now, where that network is, because it's informal, who's driving that network at the time, all of these are very interesting questions. Mm-hmm. But you do need to be in that inner circle. And there are a number of inner circles. One very um, famous... Uh, Headhunter in London, specialising in board appointments, said, I'm completely independent and I only choose 80% from the network. (laughs) I just said, you think I'm bad? In New York, it's 95%. Wow. Much worse. Uh, 
Wow. Okay. So we're having, on the one hand, the need for safety. Mm-hmm. And I think you alluded to that. In all this tension, where is that safe pair of hands? Where can we at least do our work? Mm. We have, on the other hand, the need for independence and challenge. And then we have one more hand, which is slightly worrying, which is on the legal compliance side of governance, doing what we should be doing. We're actually doing it very well. And we're actually doing it to excess. So a lot of boardroom time is now spent going through the governance requirements, the legal stipulations, the processes. Have we gone through this step by step by step? Mm -hmm. So instead of thinking what is the effect of all this on the business, we're now going through the process of process. It's almost the plain, like the oversight auditor. It's the oversight audit replicated. Mm. What we're not doing is the stewardship, which is leaving the boardroom, going onto the shop floor, going to any site or location, what is the reality, coming back to the management, challenging them, and going, by the way, to the management with their permission to these various sites so that we can see what's happening. Now, what is the academic reason for doing that? Mm. It's called a fracture point. And what's interesting is that when strategy is executed, there has turned out to be a pattern as to where that strategy should be going in one direction, but then fractures Mm -hmm. and goes in a different direction. And it doesn't matter if you're a Russian company, Chinese or American, still at the same point. And the biggest fracture point is general management. So the top team has come up with a strategy. They've gone to the board. The board has okayed it. What happens? It's when the general manager, the head of a country, the general functional manager basically says, Where did you guys conceive of this? You never asked me. You never asked my team. This is the reality. So you have a general manager who, if he wants he or she to keep their job, they pursue that strategy. And at the same time, they're having to explain to their people what to do when the strategy they're pursuing is wrong. So something goes wrong at that point. It fractures. And you get one stated strategy, and then you get something else happening in practice. Now... Who can sort that out? It's the board's job. Because they have to oversee. How does the board know that? They have to get off their seats and visit. And they have to stay there. And they have to understand. Do you know how many boards really steward as a practice? I don't mean as an odd occasion. Mm. Probably 8%. Wow, that low. Yeah. I was hoping at least... 10%. Most of them are compliance. Now, if you look at the theory of governance, it's two arms, uh, compliance and stewardship. Mm. We have gone overboard on compliance. Add to that the safety of the network that you recruit from. So what do we do? We ignore. Mm. And that is our problem today. Boards, unfortunately, ignore reality. Do you see the same phenomena of the fracture in governments? Completely. Completely. And the funny thing there in government, actually they're performing better, believe it or not, than the private company, which may surprise most. Yeah, it does. Um, The fracture point in government is not the equivalent of general manager, which is, you know, you go away from Whitehall and you go into the regions. Mm -hmm. It is at Whitehall. The biggest tension is between the Secretary of State and Permanent Secretary, and both in one sense are right, because the Secretary of State is unduly uh, demanding of an urgent implementation of policy and the permanent secretary is basically saying please minister be careful because if we don't get all these people on board and engage your policy will go wrong 
And that's the tension point. And what has made it worse in government, and particularly with this government and the previous one under Cameron, is that we've used political advisers to basically be the dogs that bite civil servants mm. and make the fracture point even worse. Who turned out to be more, more accurate on an analysis between urgency versus a realistic appraisal of what we do with a policy, realism, mm -hmm. it was a public servant. Mm. And we've spent all our time chasing public servants, criticizing public servants, and they were more right than any minister. Got it, got it. And that kind of, that's a relatively good segue. I know you've recently published um, or co-published uh, a book in relation to leadership intelligence. Um, we got it here, The Five Cues for Thriving as a Leader. Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through it at the moment. It's incredibly timely, just given the nature of, you know, the five cues. So just to kind of give a bit of context, uh, the five cues, cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, political intelligence, resilience quotient, and moral intelligence. Well, firstly, just from a research perspective, is there a prioritization? Like most people who would pick up a book or a piece of literature like this and go, okay, there's five main things I need to be strong in. What's the rack and stack of these? Like are any of these floating to the surface? Are there strong interdependencies between them? There are. And these change. These change by basically challenge. So if you're in a general management role, there's a different combination of cues. Mm -hmm. When you're at top team level, which is really strategy, and at board level, which is strategy and governance, there's again a different combination of cues. But there is one cue from the bottom to the top that survives. And it's the most important. It's not EQ. It's IQ. It's conceptualization. It's being smart. What we have found, take our conversation up to now. It's been quite broad-ranging. We've looked at a whole number of things. Yes. And imagine there's a CEO who's facing half the challenges we talked about, plus not hitting particular profit targets. Mm -hmm. How do they stand up? at an investor meeting or their own top team meeting or justify themselves to the board and provide the compelling argument as to why we're here and what we do next. And that was the cue that was absolutely vital. How do you provide the compelling argument that pulls all these different strands and pressures together? They make sense to everybody who's listening to you. And from that, you make even more sense about pursuing a strategy. How can EQ help you? How can be charming help you? How can be, if you like, flamboyant help you? Mm. You can't. You now have to provide that argument. In a mature market, you provide the argument even more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So IQ was the one thing that went from junior management right to board level. Yeah. The only requirement was you need to use it more. It was more demanding of you, and you basically got a view as an individual as to what is the level of complexity that you can cope with. And certainly one of the points made in the book is please be very conscious of the level of complexity you can cope with, because if you can't cope, not only do you fail, but you know how many people underneath you will also fail. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox. It's 
interesting that you've introduced complexity as I was going through some of the literature, particularly in relation to um, the emotional intelligence capability and applying the power of context to actually have that, you know, that that contextualization. It's not what you say, it's how you're heard. How do leaders even think about flexing an EQ muscle in complex organisations where there is so much at play and there's you know, 40,000 people and very diverse. Is, is, is it that context dependent that when it becomes too complex, it's not really dependent at all because it's something that can't be executed? And add to that, a lot of people at my end of the field are basically pushing EQ, EQ for the boardroom, EQ for the, making the executive sensitive, EQ to be able to relate to people, almost as if EQ is the answer. Mm. What did we find? It's not in the boardroom. It's not even in the top team. EQ is a phenomenon of people who have more operational roles. So if we are in a team and we're selling, Mm -hmm. if we're on a team and playing football, it doesn't matter. What we have is a defined objective. We have a limited amount of space. We have a limited budget and we have to hit particular targets. So EQ in the sense that I have to get into your feelings and mine, you have to get into my feelings and mine, so that we can really understand each other and work together, is an operational concept. How can you apply operational concepts in the boardroom exactly with the complexities that you've outlined? And what we find there is there's a different type of emotional platform, and that is PQ, your political skills. Mm. Now, politics has basically sort of got a bad name for itself, not only now nationally, but also in organisations. If you're too political, you're not a nice guy. Yes. What is politics? It is simply the uh, negotiation of the impossible to the possible. That's all. Mm -hmm. You still have to be as warm. You still have to be as sensitive. You still have to be as considerate. The difference is you have an agenda. So PQ is EQ with an agenda. Ah, Because you're trying to push in that particular boardroom or top team your point of view about why budget should be constructed this way, why we should be pursuing this portfolio, and why are you doing that? Because you have a clear view on competitive advantage. In academic circles, at least when you're in, in many business schools, particularly in the Western world, there isn't necessarily a political elective within MBAs. If it is, it's kind of the fragments of what you know, we'd naturally call you know, politics, advanced negotiation, strategy. You know, it's, it's these elements. But is there an expectation that to be more conscious of political dynamics to drive things through? I know it sounds relatively straightforward when you say it, but when you see it in the boardroom, you either have people who are hideously over-political, they're almost seen as Machiavellian, like they're, just, you know, they're not to be trusted, you know, they're out for an agenda, and quite often it's being perceived as being a self-serving exercise, so it's met with great scepticism, as opposed to good political intent that brings people along for the betterment of, 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 of the organisation and, and who the organisation serves. Does the topic of politics, starting from academia, particularly business academia, moving into organisations, does it need to change? Does it, it, does. Does it have a bad name? It does. It does have a bad name and it does need to change. I have to say here at Henley when I was at Cranfield, I did go into these particular issues. If you go back into academic history, Mm -hmm. in the late 1950s, uh, local political activism in the United States was seen by certain business authors as representing or capturing what was happening in the corporation. 
And so politics in organization in the 60s and early 70s was a really popular topic. And then it became tainted as a blackout, because what politics in organization as a subject did, it challenged the clarity of strategy, get the strategy right. Mm. Structure follows strategy, you know, this clear aim. And what politics and organization was saying is, yeah, that's true, but actually there's a lot of negotiation to do as well. Mm-hmm. And so politics became tainted as a black art. It became labeled as a black art. And we haven't got out of that. What do I see in reality, be it government, private sector, public sector? If you're not political at the top, you simply ain't going to make it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Actually, it's a very simple equation. Be political. Now, what it means to be political is entirely up to you. Yeah. So the untrustworthy person is most certainly not the political player you should be because if you're going to do something and there is complexity and you have to negotiate, you should do it in such a way that you are trusted, you are respected. So to do politics teaching well, you have to link politics, the dynamics, the negotiations, with ethical dilemmas, Mm -hmm. and particularly your ethical platform. So what is the point you will not go further? When do you know there's an ethical dilemma here? What do you do about it? When there is a very difficult decision to make, how do you reconcile what you have to do with the necessity of how you're going to do it? Now we have people who are in many ways more considerate, more sensitive to context. Their strategy for pursuing a particular course of action may not change, but their sensitivity in how they pursue that does. Mm. Now we have somebody who is at least seen as empathetic. And you hear stories like this, great CEO, but he had to make the tough decisions or she had to make the tough decisions, but still great CEO. So we now have tough decision with great person, with acceptable leader. You go down the road and there's somebody else, same tough decision, and you hear all the verbal abuse they could ever mm-hmm. get. So what happened? They were not sensitive to context. They may have been egoistic. They may have totally driven things according to their own agenda without looking at the broader picture. All true. But the way they delivered that was also poor. It, it's interesting. As I was going through the literature, this concept in relation to a number, a bit of a division between the different forms of cues cognitive, emotional, political. I saw this term around free value, free value being I am a free agent to then apply these things to positive or negative value, good or bad, greater good or self-serving. Yet the remaining two, the resilience quote and and the moral intelligence, they were kind of being framed almost as a good conscience, like value-led, value-creating, because the moral compass is very clear and it's very difficult to go back on the moral compass and go, okay, well, I'm consciously deciding to be immoral Talk a little bit, if you can, just in relation to the moral intelligence component, because I found this absolutely fascinating. Being morally aware, obviously, it's, you know, within the corporate community and within governments and within leadership as a whole, everyone is expected to, you know, act in the best interest of stakeholders themselves and the organization and society, and that's great. But actually, measuring and growing a muscle of moral intelligence conceptually, I'm like, how do we actually kind of put that into practice? It's a, it's a very good point. Um, the reason I looked at moral intelligence was I noticed with many Western companies, they weren't just American, French, actually Swedish, Finnish, mm-hmm. Danish, 
when they left their home governance regime, and they say went into, I don't know, Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. or they went into the Ukraine or Russia, they bribed. Now, I found that West, quite a few companies, are bribing, and it's about 80% of the total sample. It's big. Mm-hmm. Every month, professionally. The board knows, general management knows, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. The thing is not to be caught and to do it professionally. Then I went to talk to those people, and do you know what I found? Morally positive, morally good citizens, great fathers, great mothers, uh, great stakeholders, you name all the good terms that say that this is a great guy I want next door to me as my neighbour. So we were getting good people doing questionable things. Mm-hmm. And when I spoke to them, they said, well, what do you expect? I'm 38, I've got a mortgage, I've got kids to do this, I've got that to do that. And if I don't do it, somebody else will do it. We check that as well. What did we find? Somebody else will do it. Mm-hmm. If the company doesn't do it, another company will do it. What did we find? Another company will do it. Mm-hmm. So instead of finding bad or good behavior, what we found was ethical dilemmas. And a large number of executives are continually facing ethical dilemmas. And I've only picked a dramatic one, bribery. Mm-hmm. But what do you do when you know your boss is you know, a person that could influence your career substantially and they're a bully? Mm-hmm. And they particularly harass, for example, female executives or female staff. And you see that in front of you. What do you do worse still if you find that one female is harassing a whole load of females and everybody's petrified to speak up? So we found because of the role and its exposure and the complexities and the continually changing dynamic of circumstances and markets, people at the top are continually facing ethical challenges. And one of the ways forward is to simply ask them one question. What is your ethical platform? And what did we find? There were three. Mm -hmm. Not just one. Okay. There was the, there's an absolute right or wrong. I mean, if you go back into the history of this, there was an Immanuel Kant, there was a German. And he basically said there's a moral imperative. This is it. If you look at our governments, that's it. You will do this or you will do that. You will not do that. But what do you do when you're faced with a relatively difficult situation? What is the greatest good for the greatest number? What is the greatest good for all these people over here? Now, that particular form of ethical thinking, which we call teleology, is British. And we're the champions of that. Okay. So imagine you're in the boardroom of the top team. You know what the imperative is from governance. And you're trying to get the best level of profit in some country that's morally corrupt. Because if you don't, 5,000 people will be made redundant at home. What do you do? Well, you make sure 5,000 people are not made redundant at home. And then there was a third platform. It's called relativism. And we commonly know it as when in Rome. So here you are in some country and you're doing sales. How do you sell in this country, really? Well, you have to adapt to local context. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the culture, the environment, it, the taste of the bag. Absolutely. Yeah. So formal channels of sales are just meaningless. <laughs> so you go through another channel of sales. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody in a top team then faces three moral questions. Are you going to do it right or wrong, yes or no, which we call deontology? Mm-hmm. Are you going to take a relativist position teleologically, which is the British tradition, 
Mm-hmm. Or are you going to be relativist? When in Rome, do as the Romans. And each one of those, if you look at the intellectual propriety behind them, each one of those is ethically right. So if you go into the history, the philosophy mm-hmm. of ethics, we actually have three contrasting ethical positions that we can take. That are all defendable. That are all defendable. What's not defendable is if you get it wrong. Mm. Who's the person most exposed? Well, it's not the man in the street. It's the person at the very top of an organization that has all these resources to position. It's the head of the government who's got all the whole nation's resources to position. Mm. So when you add politics with ethical thinking, at least you have some sort of mechanism, some sort of safeguard for yourself and for your own sanity, which says what you're going through is actually normal. Every top executive goes through this. Mm -hmm. You can better defend yourself and your organization by being absolutely clear that you know where you stand. And if you can make that clear to the top team and the board, then we can get a better ethically moral position. Mm. The number of organizations that have such an ethical position, for example, will not go into a country and trade because of the bribery exposure mm-hmm. is very limited. There are very few John Lewis partnerships around. Yep. Most organizations go right across the world. But at least if the top team can be enabled and ethically understand what they're doing and at least support or defend their position, we have the best possible chance. Yeah, and that, that it's the support or defend. If you can credibly defend 5,000 jobs back at home yeah. you know, not being made redundant, then yeah. it's on that platform that you'll go and be like, well, this justifies the position. Therefore, I have a moral – I've provided the, an exercise in moral intelligence because this is the way that I've applied it. Doesn't that also then provide a little bit of creative license almost to – use any of these, given the circumstances, a bit of a get-out-of-jail card to be like, I did this for the greater good. Completely. Yeah, so it's a double You cannot escape your own moral conscience and you cannot escape what you are going to do and how you're going to justify it. The safeguard we have is when somebody is using what I'm saying as a get-out-of-jail card approach, it shows. And it shows quickly. Because most people inside the organization understand the various contexts in which they operate right across mm. the world. Yeah, they understand sure. the dilemmas that are there, and they see that individual as not taking responsibility for their actions. And so their credibility drops, respect for them drops, which it should. So the get-out-of-jail card is something what we try and get people to defend against. Don't go into that area. Understand it. it is a tempting approach, but it will not help you. And if things go wrong, you'll still be blamed. So that goes back to the question that you raised about resilience. At the end of the day, do you have the personal strength to cope with all of the stuff we're talking about? Because if you don't, you're not going to succeed. As I sit down and I was you know, going through the book and making notes and, and preparing for this conversation, when I lined up all the five cues, are there many examples of leaders who pull all of these five together in a very coherent way that can be looked at as, you know, this is a great example of people who kind of have it all together and actually do good for the people, be it a company, be it a government. Were there there any outstanding kind of examples that pop forward? There are, but not many. And the reason is that leader displays four Qs, IQ, PQ, the ability to negotiate, the resilience factor, and MQ, the moral quotient. The vast majority of leaders only display three. Oh. IQ, P2, 
PQ, political skills, and resilience. And what unfortunately drops in the boardroom of the top team is EQ, which is, we're not a team, but MQ. We talk sustainability, we talk all this other stuff, but actually in practice, we ignore it, we hide it, we mm-hmm. go against it. It becomes CSR, it, it becomes, becomes something over there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and we have a nice language to describe it, but we it's do. still over there. Yeah. So when you have a 3Q leader, there aren't that many. But when you have a 4Q leader, yes, there are. And there was one chairman, for example, who probably he wouldn't uh, thank me for naming him, so I won't. But what he did under the most difficult circumstances, he said, we have an MQ problem. It's on a mass scale. We're in the road-building business. We're going to Chile and other countries. How do you think you get contracts for roads through all those mountains? Yep. You're private minister. You crunch it. So what he did was he hired a central department, which he called PR, of diplomats. So when the bribery situation arose, which it did... Which inevitably would, yeah. He immediately protected the local general manager and started negotiating with the minister. What was the end of the negotiation? We had investment in schools, we had investments in roads, in hospitals. So what would have gone into a particular personal pocket went into a community pocket. And therefore they used that as the mandate to get re-elected. Some of things happening along the continent all, of Africa with absolutely. Chinese investment and these sort of things. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a common model in the last yeah. 15 years. Yeah. And it's expensive yes. because you have to have good people at the centre to do it and it's expensive as an outcome. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite address the total moral problem, but at least we have transparency. And you have some knock-on effect that's not solely going into one individual's pocket. Absolutely. There, there is that positive kind of that value-led Absolutely. approach. Absolutely. It's particular, but it's there. Now, this company will never be caught for bribery. They don't do it. Mm-hmm. I'm working with a, a company in Russia, mm-hmm. and it is a very demanding environment. Do you know that this company in Russia is probably bribe-free to the shame of British, American, French, you name it, companies. Bribe-free. Do you know that this company, because of the strategy they've gone through, and they took time, it took about mm-hmm. four years, they now have a billion US dollars to invest they don't know what to do with. Wow. So not only have they invested in their business and done it well, they have just a cash mountain they don't know how to distribute. But have they attracted that capital from having that high moral... Intelligence? Yes, absolutely, because you have investors that trust them. Funnily enough, the government trusts them in Russia. Mm -hmm. Uh, The CEO shareholders is one of the most trusted individuals in Russia and is equally very wealthy. So there is a good positive spin to the story on being moral. The problem is it's hard work because Mm -hmm. this individual had to root out all elements of bribery and corruption from the bottom to the top. He found at the bottom it was largely due to poverty. So had to invest in, in, in a big way there. Yeah. Had to change people's contracts in the supply chain. That took a long time. Mm-hmm. That created respect. Then you had to deal with all the various governments you're dealing with and how you formed relationships and negotiated them so that you don't bribe anymore, but you do something different that is transparent and positive for years. So as time goes on and you go down and executing a strategy like that and it takes time, ultimately your your, in this case, corporate identity is becoming your main value play. You're known for this sort of behavior. You have runs on the board. You can point to this is how we do business. We are an exception, but this is our new normal. 
and then you know, you know it becomes the culture it gets celebrated it becomes a pr exercise and then out it goes and then completely. it becomes the shining star completely and you're trusted by different sectors so this particular company mm. is in the steel coal gold business yeah and here they are in health as well wow they're in other service type of areas and you know what it's growing and they have no particular competence in health. They've had to bring it in. But the culture of this company has made so many people trust them that if the only problem we have is competence, we can deal with them. From cognitive intelligence, relatively straightforward of how people can kind of build that capability. Emotional intelligence, kind of, you know, the, the, the emotional intelligence kind of um, industry, particularly within boardrooms, is definitely getting momentum. So a lot of people have access to that. Um Political resilience and moral, are there practical ways or where do people go to actually learn the capability, get their hands dirty, understand what this sort of work looks like in practical application? Because a lot of people who are listening who have career ambitions and are working in organisations or government who are going up that that organisational hierarchy, they're busy with operational day-to-day, you know, this is off the side of their desk. Is it just solely literature? Are there things that they can do, lessons, practice tests, things that they can kind of uh, you know, bring into their daily workflow? The PQ, RQ, NQ combination package, mm-hmm. the only place I know that does that in a practical developmental way is with me here. Okay. But if you look individually, um, where can you go for resilience? There are quite a few sort of private practices. There are quite mm-hmm. a few medical operations building up, all with their own different story and approach. Almost like the oxyc sort uh, of industries. Uh, very much, there. very okay. much there. Do you know at the end of the day with resilience, there's one fundamental message, and that is whatever else training you go through, just be realistic about your circumstances. And that realism is the first clue you have concerning what you need to be resilient about. And if you don't like it, leave it. If you don't like it, go somewhere and get trained. But be realistic. Mm. The PQ bit is usually friends and mates, to be honest with you. Okay. You know, it's somebody. Kind of open discussion and it's really... an open discussion. It's a dinner time discussion. It's one chairman getting up to another chairman and asking, well, how did you handle your situation? I've got something similar. Mm -hmm. So it's usually people who trust each other, very informal discussions, Mm -hmm. um, almost like a mentoring, coaching, facilitation type of experience. But as a formal development, I don't think it exists. And the MQ one is the most isolated. Mm. By and large, it's up to you. How do you as a chairman go and admit what everybody knows that you go to this country and things ain't what they seem to be? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Chairman doesn't say that. Who do they trust to actually not replicate or convey that message elsewhere? Or misinterpret it. The media gets hold of it and becomes something instantaneously, represents something different. Absolutely. So either you have a very good friend or you have a contact or you have a confidant. But most of the time, you're left on your own. Mm. And that's the problem. The drain of the ethical dilemmas people face is high. And funnily enough, it's not the chairman, the CEO, or the top team member that's most drained. It's the general manager. It's the guy who's running the country. Yeah. Most companies that didn't intend to reform on the moral side, it, that initiative never came from the board of the top team. It came from an outstanding general manager that decided that no is no in my particular patch. 
and against headquarters, against the advice of the board, started reorganising all the contracts in their particular area and took a tremendous risk with their career. Many have failed. Of the few that have succeeded, that practice then migrated up to the board. But it didn't ah. start at the board. So it's kind of that relativism, when in Rome, proof of concept, bottom up. Bottom up, up. absolutely. Because yeah, yeah, then you go, well, you know, the world is complex. We are dealing in complex environments. There's ivory tower mentality. There's things that you know, the ELT chair board don't necessarily get to see, understand the interdependencies and the complexities of the environment and the business. But if you have GMs, country managers, these sort of people who are getting a grip and dealing with those ethical dilemmas through a particular framework and going, well, here is how and this is why and this is good practice. Because without these frameworks, then suddenly it's it's a free-for-all and you, you, know, you can end up being on the hook for all sorts of things because there's no real clear clear kind of guidance in relation to how it should be done because you know senior leaders will put their fingers in their ears and go yeah i understand we're responsible but you know we don't know what every one of our forty-three thousand staff are uh, are up to and kind of plead ignorance and kind of and, and, and use that to get out of jail and that is the big issue what i found with one particular general manager i have in mind mm. they would not speak to the board it's not that the board didn't want to know they did not want to know they did not want to listen but they knew so the general manager said to me, do you know how I started this initiative? Totally on my own. If I had gone to the board for support, they would have sacked me on the spot. Mm. So I did it on my own. I survived. I got a good practice. It's now migrating its way up the organization. So this pleading ignorance, when you have full insight, instead of getting better, more insight, less ignorance, is getting worse more pleading of ignorance with full insight. It kind of sounds like the don't ask, don't tell policy that Absolutely. came out in the US military 15, 20 years ago. It's that that I'm picking up, mm. but not with the very few talented general managers who basically said, do you understand one thing about bribery and corruption? The very people that I'm dealing with in this country hate it as much as I do. They don't want it. They don't want to go to a doctor and bribe for having a consultation or go to a school teacher to get extra lessons when, in fact, the lessons are not very good during the day. They want to be bribery and corrupt-free. So that is my network. And when you get somebody brave enough to take that local context and work with them as a complete local context mm -hmm. to improve things, we have a chance. I noticed that within the book, it's co-authored, Ali Kasim Jawad. What did this individual contributor because i've obviously you know, we're only speaking to one half of the coin here I'd, I'd, true. I'd love to understand like what are the research that, that, that came into this piece of work ali is a long-standing colleague and friend of mine and we've been working together on a number of assignments he is now one of the most influential strategic facilitators in the royal court of oman okay we work together on a number of projects across the middle east and in different countries um, he, in a sense, brought the practical side. I brought the more academic side. But we had worked together on most of the issues that we've been discussing. Okay. And he wanted to write this book because he said, in any part of the world you're in, you can come out as a great leader, despite all the challenges, with the right moral framework as well. Got it. And so the two of us have formed a very good writing partnership 
it's almost like a mindset partnership where we understand and sympathize, empathize with the problems of so many leaders, mm. but we don't accept their problems. We want to basically say there's a way forward. Leadership Intelligence, The Five Cues for Thriving as a Leader is the title of the book. Definitely go check it out. Andrew, what is next? You're a busy man, but is it, is it more leadership, deeper, deeper? Is it something different? What's on the horizon? There are two things on the horizon. Um, both are just about ready to fly. Um, the first is through here at Henley. We've passed through committee the very first master's degree for board directors in the world. Oh, wow. There is no other degree like it. And it's a practice-based degree, not sort of academic. Mm -hmm. So you go through various stages and you're basically all the stuff we've been talking about, the compliance, the uh, stewardship, the challenges, the dynamics, the risks, you're taken through that to finally uh, a long essay or a dissertation, which is about solving a problem in your boardroom. So this is a combination of academic development, a high level of personal development. The cues are a central book in this particular degree, mm -hmm. but also consultancy organization development, because we're trying to develop an organization and come up with something good. At the very end of the program, we'll see if it works. We have a conference. We even have a publisher who said they will publish every two to three years all the best papers that come from this particular cohort and the next cohort. So we create a body of knowledge. We hope to start in Romania, number one. In Romania? In Romania. We're um, number two, we're talking in the Middle East to a particular country, two countries in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and we'll start talking in the city very shortly. But we are trying to take this concept of stewardship and, you know, concentrated development. So you really are put through a grindstone, if you like, but you come out of it as someone who can handle adversity and complexity to different parts of the world. And the second thing we're doing is we're just completing the biggest study ever of public sector organizations and their boards and their resilience and their moral capacity. So we looked at sport, charities, health, and universities. Wow. And That's that cool. is just, I think, last week we completed the database, the questionnaire database. We closed it. Nice. Now we're going to start the writing. Got to start crunching, yeah. And one of the perhaps most interesting findings is in terms of governance and leadership, mm -hmm. Who emerged as, if you could imagine, the worst in inverted commas? Mm -hmm. You know, the least governance-oriented, the most not wishing to listen, mm -hmm. universities. <laughs> yeah, well, there's been, particularly over the last, uh, what, 24, 48 months, there's, there's been a relatively large amount of university bashing in, yeah. in, in the public arena and it's getting momentum. Some just, some unjust, but that's definitely a conversation for later. But the lack of governance in universities is a major concern. Yeah, makes sense. Finally, um, where can people find you? I've got my own website. Yes. I'm here at Henley. I'm also emeritus at Cranfield, so I have a Cranfield email address. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm under andrew.kakabatsi.com. Excellent. Andrew Kakabatsi, thank you so much for joining us on The Strategy Behind. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives, and organizations across the globe. If you're interested in Adam's work or wish to sign up for his newsletter, go to adamcox.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Peter Morgan with music by Judson Lee. Our executive producer is Adam Cox. 
And to find more episodes, visit adamcox.com forward slash podcasts.